HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with two people that really influence, I think, uh, my morning ritual, uh, James Freeman of Blue Bottle Coffee, well, Caitlin of Blue Bottle Coffee as well, but has a past that uh, sated my sweet tooth for years, uh, owning, operating, uh, baking at Miette in San Francisco. So thank you for being on Coffee and Sweets, however people nomer you these days. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. It's fun. So, coffee. We'll start with that. Let's start as, with coffee. As any good day should begin and end, at least I think. Uh, James, how did you get into coffee? I usually ask people, you know, where they grew up, uh, what they cooked, what they ate, but where did you grow up and what was your first cup of coffee? Well, um, I grew up in very rural Humboldt County, and my parents had a horrible and emphatically defended coffee regimen. And that was uh, percolator, uh, one of those classic sort of white percolators with a little blue cornflower on them, and MJB coffee, canned coffee. I still remember the green can. And, um, you know, there's this allure when you're a kid of, like, grown-up stuff of stereos and cars and coffee makers that I haven't quite um, outgrown. But I remember uh, them letting me open the can of coffee, and being very excited, you know, it's a tool, can opener is a sharp yeah. tool. And, and when you open a can of coffee, you probably don't know this because you don't have cans of coffee in your house. You open a can of coffee and there's this, this um, exiting of air. This the pressure. Whoosh, yeah, the pressure goes and it smells, yeah. smells incredible, or at least that was my memory of it, um, smelling incredible. And um, 
so it's, I thought, oh, this coffee, that must be amazing. This MJB <laughs> stuff in the can, if to smell like that, must be amazing. Can I, can I say how funny it is to be from Humboldt and have coffee called MJ? <laughs> but let's keep going. <laughs> That's, I um, was super nerdy, so I rebelled um, in high school by not smoking marijuana. Yeah. So all those references are like <laughs> lost on me, I have to say. <laughs> but you overly caffeinated, I hope. Yes, yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, so that you know, I thought the smell was amazing. I was four or five years old, and, and there was this this begging campaign, prolonged begging campaign, of me wanting to try coffee. And so I wore them down. Eventually, months went by, and they allowed me to try the coffee. And no surprise, it was horrible. <laughs> it tasted horrible, and that tension kind of lodged. I think that I. I became more obsessed by coffee because it tasted horrible in that first experience than if I really enjoyed it right away. Um, so there was always this this question mark in my mind. How, how could that be? How could it smell so good and taste so terrible? And so as the years progressed, I, I you know progressed into making it in a French press or a pour over and finally roasting my own coffee at home and and, but the seeds were, were launched that in very early. I, I hope you had a different association, Caitlin, where you smelled something and it smelled great and tasted great, and that kind of forged your path into pastry. Well, my, my path into pastry was forged by way of art, not necessarily by, uh, by the way anything should taste. I mean, I have a sweet tooth, and I've always had a sweet tooth, um, but my sweet tooth was most definitely in the... Um, candy skittles and starburst and twinkies and donuts and duncan Hines frosting um i mean that was my childhood there was nothing refined or sort of beautiful and elegant about it um i liked the sweet and what um and and you know i never had any interest in becoming a baker it was just kind of my i i i loved a California, or I still love a, a California painter named Wayne Tebow. Believe and me, I, I've been trying. <laughs> been sending letters to Wayne to try to get him on the show. I have been too. We yeah. even threw a 90th birthday party for him at our SF MoMA Cafe and uh, had the entire day devoted to him, but he didn't come. He, you know, he was turning 90 and his son had just passed away, so you, you can't blame him. Yeah. But um, so I was obsessed with this, this painter and um, in my. I was a photography student in college. Um, and in my goal to try and um, do something with my love of his paintings, I learned how to make cakes, which was purely sort of as an art project, but not necessarily kind of with the intention to for it to be commerce. I didn't, I didn't want to... I didn't have the goal of being a business owner and I didn't have the goal of being a, a baker that just sort of came out of my desire to make art of cakes. So, you know, it's sort of a funny direction inspired by not necessarily taste, although that, you know, that's become an important part of what you do as yeah. a baker, you know, it can't just look good. Um, but yeah, it, it's kind of the opposite trajectory from James's, which yeah. is trying to reconcile the way something I don't tastes. think it's necessarily the opposite because, you know, when you're introduced both these profiles, both these palettes, uh, often we taste the low rather than the high, mm. you know, and our introdu- you're talking about Skittles and you're talking about Swell. Um, so, you know, it, it is to 
both rectify that that flavor profile and make it taste better, mm. you know, in, in your mouth and in your mind. But it's also using that as some kind of gateway and hopefully you educate yourself off of that. Because whereas Caitlin used art, did you use science uh, to further your knowledge of coffee? Yes. Um, I used, I don't know, I, I don't have a scientific background. I think I have a rational background. But I also have a very process-driven background. Um, I was a clarinet player before I came into coffee. And, you know, there's the... People think musicians, what they do is perform. But actually what musicians do is sit in a room by themselves practicing. That's what musicians do. And every once in a while they get to go out. So that... <laughs> if, that not, if not for you guys here today, I'd be doing the same thing. <laughs> Sitting in this radio station alone, talking to myself. Oh, Fantastic. That's sad. <laughs> So, yeah, the, the, the process, um, not only learning the score, but learning how to interpret that. Yeah, music. or just to be able to play a chromatic scale, you know, variations on chromatic scale for every day, for years in a row. For at, That's how you start your day. That's the first half hour of your day, you know, to do that over and over and over again and try to find some richness in those half-step intervals that you play all the time. So that, that process of pouring water on coffee grounds in a cone and having it drip into a cup you, you know you can either get bored of that or you can find all the thousand little micro ways of making that slightly better and try to improve that day after day and, and find it fascinating find it interesting so your cookbook that just came out uh, breaks coffee down into steps yes into the idea of growing roasting brewing and drinking um is that how you formalize making coffee during the day? That I want to have this kind of, you know, uh, bean, this kind of roast, this kind of brewing process, and I want to drink it this way. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's fair. There's, I have different needs in coffee and different interests in coffee as the day progresses. You know, basically, when I'm at home, I don't put on pants before I have a cappuccino. <laughs> <laughs> You know. So it's it's almost safe to ask, have you had your cappuccino yet to see whether or not you have pants on? I have pants on, therefore <laughs> I've had a cappuccino. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a rational act. Um yeah, so there there's that that vulnerability, people that need coffee every day and, and you know, sometimes we see people, sometimes people go out for their first coffee of the day and, and so that's a very vulnerable time in a in somebody's life is when they're it's like waiting for that first coffee in the, in the morning. So I, I have a keen appreciation of that. And then, you know, and then there's the going out f for coffee and seeing how people are doing in the shop, seeing how the espresso is tasting on, oh, this is day five, and you know, with this, this blend. Or what do I really want? What am, what am I expecting? There's the rounds of cupping. There's the pour-overs in the afternoon. There's a lot of different ways to, to desire coffee. But that kind of matrix of, where the coffee is from and how it's roasted and how it's prepared. That's kind of a fun checkerboard yeah. to um, play with. Yeah. Caitlin, were you intimidated when you first met James and served him a terrible cup of coffee? Oh, I don't make him coffee. Actually, <laughs> a, a few years ago, I, um, for his father's day present, um, I surreptitiously contacted our, um, wholesale trainer at the time and had her come to our house and teach me how to make espressos on um, James's home machine, which is a little bit finicky. Yeah, of what, course. what is the home machine? It's at that time, 
and hopefully in the future it's a 1970s San Marco lever machine. Uh, right now it's in the shop and we're kind of reorganizing our kitchen and I've got a also I think a 1970s Olympia Cremina, which is a a little peewee lever, but also yeah. a very nice machine. And the San Marco, it's it's kind of a beast. It t- takes up a lot of room. It leaks a lot. Um, and but glorious. It you know, <laughs> and it's and it's finicky. And so I had our our wholesale trainer come give me two lessons on making ham and and a cappuccino at home. And um, so it was all a secret. And then on Father's Day, when he was he of course had already made himself a coffee. But while he was in. Uh, the shower um, I had our son go into the bathroom and start like making a lot of noise and having a you know conniption fit so that James couldn't hear me running the grinder and you know knocking out the the espresso puck out of the the portafilter uh, and we surprised him with a a Father's Day cappuccino, and you know, I still have those skills. And occasionally, if James is sick, <laughs> you know, it's certainly not the best coffee he's going to have by any stretch of the imagination. But um, I, I'm actually not a coffee drinker myself. Uh, you know, very moderately now. But you know, when we were first dating, we we met. We were next door neighbors at the Berkeley Farmers Market, and um, James was I was selling cakes, and he was selling coffee and he was sort of this new up-and-coming coffee guy and he was like then this this you know guru of coffee and you know the, the first couple times we slept over together you know he would come and bring me a cappuccino in bed and it was this thing that so many men or women would love to have James bring you a cappuccino in bed and I'm so dainty that I would have to try and keep myself from like retching because it was so strong thank and you <laughs> the truth comes out you were no, safe here. thanks for not retching yeah and I remember thinking like this is horrible he should be dating someone so much better than me someone who is you know able to drink coffee and but you know that was our our early coffee life was about me trying to learn how to drink coffee pretty quickly and keep my cool. Um, that that's a great subtitle for <laughs> your memoir someday. <laughs> um, what's amazing about you know your background in art and then pastry is that you'd think uh, being such a almost logical uh, field coffee and how it's made you know and and rational way of uh, making it that it would be almost a simple transition moving from pastry to coffee what do you find are the big differences between baking and roasting coffee or baking and making coffee well i've never roasted coffee um and i have limited experience making coffee um but i do think it's it's very similar um in a way that as a baker I'm very methodical you know I want to know how much things weigh in the um, hundredth of a gram you know I want things to come out perfectly every time um, and it's it's certainly not like being a savory cook you know I don't wing it I don't you know there's nothing about my work and my method of working that is free form you know if I'm developing a recipe I'm developing things in sort of 
adding spices by the half gram. Um, and my goal is to have it come out perfectly every time. Um, and I think James's way of making coffee is very similar, although what panics me about the coffee making process is that it, it changes and the roast state of the beans, the weather outside, you know, all of these factors really take an, an artistry and an ability to kind of modify what you're doing to extract something that isn't, you know, I want to know that what I'm making is going to be perfect. And with coffee, it's much different. You know, you have to be willing to play with the elements and the grind size. There are so many factors that, you know, from not even just in the making of coffee, it's from the growing of the trees, the picking of the trees, the harvesting, the roasting. There are so many factors that can affect, you know, that you're not guaranteed to make the perfect cup of coffee every single time which panics me yeah i mean did sanka do a disservice uh using the idea of instant that people think that coffee is just this magical bean that appears and caffeinates you yeah i mean there there is that notion of coffee being this commodity that effortlessly flows from this tap where the tap leads you know it's it's not really people aren't really sure maybe it's into this big urn maybe it's some maybe it's like hot water and it comes from somewhere else downstairs you know there's people aren't certain that a that coffee's a fruit that it's a cherry that you know you pick it when it's ripe and it tastes really good when you pop it in your mouth you know so I, i think there has been this notion of of coffee just sort of flowing out of a receptacle or being instant that that the, there's no labor or work required to make something delicious, which obviously is counterintuitive. You know, things that are easy to make usually don't taste good. Yeah. And I, I think coffee's the same way. Um, so now there's more appreciation for people taking more time to make pizza or to make cakes or to make coffee. So, I mean, you have blue bottles on the West Coast, on the East Coast. Yes, we do. People can visit those locations and have an excellent cup. Let's talk about the home because the cookbook, uh, the Blue Bottle cookbook itself, is kind of geared towards uh, the home connoisseur, how they can do all these things. For the the home enthusiast, enthusiast. somebody who's maybe a little bit interested in coffee wants to learn more. But how can they make a great cup at home? Um, You know, they don't have, what is it, a Merzoco or Mm -hmm. a Probot to be able to, you know, roast the beans. What can they do and what kind of devices like pour overs or french presses are the best gateway instruments to make yourself a great cup of coffee i love the simplicity of a pour over i think it's so elemental all you need is a little cone filter you need a pretty good grinder it's helpful it's not absolutely necessary but it's helpful and then you just need to pay attention it's if you have a gram scale that's good you weigh your coffee weigh your water you know, you know how much is coming in, coming out. You can express the difference between those two as a ratio. Coffee to water, grams to milliliters, which is a milliliter of water is also a gram of water. So, um, you know, then, then you have this basic number, 1 to 10 or 1 to 14. You know, you like your coffee at 1 to 14. Or it's going to, I'm going to try it a little bit. I'm going to try it at 1 to 11. <laughs> you know? Um, but ultimately, it's pouring slowly and carefully, hot water through coffee grounds and and that's it's not difficult it's only difficult if you think you should be able to push a button yeah and make coffee so it's the slow and low method of yeah 
making well, coffee. I think that there is, you know, something really interesting. Coffee is, you know, as James says, it's, uh, you know, it's a pharmacological necessity for many people in waking up. And I think a lot of people just want coffee before they can think about making coffee. Um, and what I've seen in the kind of coffee world and the, the spirit of the coffee geek is somebody who really loves the making of the coffee and you know it's about the process and the experimentation and the the discovery of learning how to make coffee um and i think that that's kind of what with this book we james sort of tried to do is encourage people that it's actually really fun to make your coffee and to play with it and to figure it out you know it's not so much about the, the liquid that you're going to get, which is great. And sometimes is really, really necessary, but you should kind of enjoy the, the process while you're doing it. And it's, you know, it is a process. Yeah, it's deeply satisfying to yeah. make something beautiful. You know, but I also think that coffee occupies a, a philosophical place in the food world that's different from almost every other member of the food world. You know, because people make coffee poorly or well every single day a lot of people and they don't do that with pizza they don't you know it's you, you eat here and it's like oh well when i make a pizza margarita my oven is 675 not 725 you know there's there's this if you do something every day you're going to think you're an expert at it even if you're not and so there's there's that hurdle that people have to make they have to question years long habits if they change how they're making coffee. It's like, well, I've been making it in a, in a Mr. Coffee for the last 12 years. You know, I, we got this for our wedding, and it's good enough. You know, so, so there's a little bit of pushback sometimes when you're attempting to help people improve how they make coffee in a way that maybe they're, they want to know how to make a better hamburger. They want to know how to make a better pork chop, but they're not necessarily wanting to be instructed on this, you know, decades-long habit that they yeah have. well you know good enough isn't great good enough uh, is usually pretty horrible yeah <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and actually talk about the things that make coffee better and i don't great. mean the sourcing the growing grinding but some of the pastries to pair with it that's good and you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org we'll be right back
Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with the Freemans of Blue Bottle. It's easier than saying your first name because this book is also a great collaboration of both the coffee and the sweets that are paired with. Um, we talked about how you two met, but how did you know the sweeter side of coffee come into play with Blue Bottle? Uh, Caitlin, how did you start uh, you know, having your pastries on the shelves? Uh, well, it, James, I used to have a pastry shop, and James would sell our cookies and little bites at his shops. And then when I sold the business in 2008, which happened to also be our, our wedding day, was the day that the business was sold. <laughs> so, you know, I was unemployed and married and... We had a brand new house, and it, my whole life was upside down. Um, you know, I intended to go off and open my own pie shop or something, uh, but it was 2008, and the economy was terrible. And so, you know, I thought uh, James we James wasn't selling the pastries from my old business any longer, so I thought I would kind of help him out by developing a few recipes and then passing it off to someone and moving along to do my my own project um so i i had a few months that i got to develop recipes and sort of take a little time off before starting with blue bottle and um so i thought a lot about what people wanted when they came to a coffee shop you know there's there's a number of factors um first is just the kinds of things that people eat uh i mean like i said i'm a a a baker um so i i know sweets um and i then that does occasionally pose a problem because people don't always want sweets but at blue bottle (laughs) (laughs) they must there's not a lot of other options but um so i was thinking about kind of the 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 types of sweets people like and you know going into coffee shops and just paying attention to what people are accustomed to buying along with their coffee and then, you know, having the opportunity to decide what flavors go well with coffee. And, um, you know, the natural inclination is for, for anyone thinking of baking at Blue Bottle is to use the coffee and the baked goods. But um, Which you do have in the stout coffee cake in the book. No, there's no coffee. Oh. Um, but, you know, I realized that people don't want to drink coffee and eat coffee. You know, there has to be some sort of pairing that that complement each other, not necessarily like sort of fight and cancel each other out or make you more caffeinated than you intend to be. Yeah, well, I mean, when you do a cupping and a cupping uh, in coffee is, you know, I think you could better explain cupping than cupping I Cupping is uh, just a funny word for this uh methodical way of tasting that we do several times a day at the roastery. I've got a 
little chapter on it, how you can do it at home. It's just an easy way of comparing a lot of different coffees in a short amount of time and knowing that you've prepared them exactly the same way. Can you tell me a flavor profile of one of your favorite coffees recently? Oh, well, I was, we just got back from Brazil and we were in Sao Paulo. This farmer that we've worked with has a farm called FAF and they brought a bunch of their coffees to this cafe, which was closed on Sunday. So we cupped maybe 40 coffees, 40 or 50 coffee, coffees over four hours. And one of them, I remember it was, it was very leisurely and fun. There were a lot of people there, farmers and, and coffee buyers from all over the world. And, and um, there's the one that kind of stood out. It was towards the end, and it just had this luminous, sort of shimmery top end, and a, a very caramelly, caramelly body. It was heavy without being sort of pudgy, and um, it had this beautiful brightness to it, and just like layers and layers of flavors. It's it's sort of like like thinking about your wedding day practically you know you can just like imagine that day in such um detail you know it was a deeply evocative coffee and i think we ended up with a few bags of that lot so yeah i'm excited about that. i mean caitlin when you hear something like that a, you know a soliloquy about you know a, a little bean uh, or cherry um <laughs> Is that how you look to construct flavor profiles in your pastries? Something that's complementary or contrasting? I would love to. I would love to be able to, um, with each coffee that's released, develop a recipe. Um, sadly, though, our production <laughs> does not allow that. And we have 10 shops and two coasts. And so we... You see, you see that with a frown. That's a great thing. No, no, no. Entrepreneurship. That, that yeah. is fantastic. <laughs> One day in our old age when we can retire and open a, a coffee and pastry shop and it's just the two of us, every one of my pastries will be kind of perfectly aligned with... Um, how James describes his coffee and sort of the complimentary notes. But, um, no, I mean, we do, I mean, like I said, there are categories. There are um, kind of the comforting flavor profiles that people want. You know, I realized when I developed the first round of pastries for our shops that because I'm not much of a chocolate eater and I don't generally love chocolate which can be explained by my love of Skittles and Starburst <laughs> and Twinkies um, I had not put chocolate in a single pastry item for the blue bottle shop so I had to quickly come up with something which is how the double chocolate cookie you came didn't just into put being. it in once you put it in exactly. twice yeah. <laughs> that means she only had to make one dessert exactly. <laughs> it's taking care of everybody all at once uh, and I, I actually think that still remains our one chocolate item in the pastry cakes. Um, but, you know, and I think coffee's great with chocolate, but I also think there are so many diverse flavors. I really am into um, unusual spices and alcohols that pair well with coffee. Oh, the absinthe sesame. Sesame cigars, absinthe, yeah. or, you know, we have a barrel-aged brandy-soaked cake. Um and, and, you know, that's also a little bit because we have St. George Spirits right across the channel from us in Alameda. Um, so it's easy just to hop over there and do a tasting of their, you know, 50 different barrel-aged brandies. And, um, and you know, they were producing this really great absinthe that was perfect for these cookies. Um, yeah. And we have Le Sanctuaire, which is a spice shop 
uh, in San Francisco is a wholesale spice shop, but um, they're incredible. And just the things that you can kind of find there that you have no idea what they are, or what their uses are, and kind of keeping those in mind for, you know, taking something simple like a cookie and trying to, you know, elevate the flavor and not necessarily challenge people. Uh, well, I mean, saffron, vanilla, snickerdoodles. I mean, snickerdoodle is, 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 know a band-aid straight down the midwest for me but saffron and vanilla yeah um are two distinct continents right right and and that's not actually even a snickerdoodle recipe i just stole the name (laughs) to try and help sales because no one would buy it when we first started making it well we'll, james we'll bleep her out that whole time (laughs) so (laughs) it's never given away well i mean what i i like if you think about sort of the average coffee shop pastry case there are usually a lot of horrible things in it. There's a lot of desultory items that just happen to arrive from a wholesale bakery truck. You know, we call it the PBM, the perfunctory brand muffin. You know, and you see that even in good coffee places, they have a lot of ill-considered and poorly made items in their, their case. And, and one of the things I love about what Caitlin does for us is, A, we make it ourselves, and B, she's got this sort of this provocative this this restraint plus a, a, an ability to provoke you know when we have this ginger cookie that's super gingery but actually doesn't have a lot of the other things that usually go along with the ginger cookie the cinnamon the nutmeg you know that whole like autumnal spice party that usually exists in a ginger cookie um, what she's done as she's found the spice this incredible spice black cardamom and that marries really well, and it's because of both her desire to provoke and her desire to be restrained, she's able to marry these things that don't call attention to themselves, that pair really well with coffee, but are um, subtly very original. So does that approach make you make coffee differently? or I think that's kind of a natural part of my personality. When we first opened, our first shop was in a garage on a pea-smelling alleyway. And we didn't have any sizes and we didn't have any flavors and every coffee was made to order. It wasn't because I wanted to be provocative. That was just kind of the way I wanted it to happen. And, you know, I couldn't afford a cafe, so I did it in a friend's garage, which happened to be on the alleyway. It was a little unsavory and now it's not and it's fine. And so there's more shops that are making coffee, every coffee to order, you know, but but at the time it it was thought of as being you know, very different. And some people would get, what do you mean I can't have a large? What, you know, what do you mean I, I can't have hazelnut? Or why do I have to wait for a few minutes? You know, so I, I think that's where our personalities, our professional personalities mesh really well is because of, of these desires to, to fulfill our own expectations first and foremost, and then hope that people are happy to come along. And I think that sort of came about because neither of us had experience in the commerce of our businesses beforehand. You know, James hadn't had certain rules ingrained in him about how profit margins work in a cafe and why some things are just necessary in order to, you know, be profitable, which is, um, luckily it's worked out otherwise but we had we weren't sort of faced with these these rules that we had to follow in creating our own shops we could do it our way with being kind of blissfully unaware yeah did you feel like that going into the sf moma i mean that that itself is its own kind of 
beasts, its own kind of collaboration. It was its, you know, another in a series of questionable business decisions. This one wasn't about peace-smelling alleyways. This one was about, oh, let's open a cafe in a place where you have to spend $20 to get in and go up five flights of stairs. You know, that's intuitively a bad decision. But it was beautiful. And, and, you know, then Caitlin had the idea of, of doing her desserts there and it worked out. Yeah. I mean, thankfully at this point, um, I don't have to run the business, so it's not, I just, I just get to make cakes and somebody else will tell me if the margins work <laughs> out. Um, well, you're, you're also saying just cakes. These are more than just cakes. Um, because what you're doing at SF MoMA is, it's a future book project that will be coming out, uh, April 16th, yeah. wherever books are yeah. sold. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's about these cakes that you're making with direct uh, direction or influences from art. Um, yes. Mondrian cake. Correct. Um, well, as I just found out, Andy Warhol jelly. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I was inspired to be a baker by art by Wayne Tebow. And uh, coincidentally, just after selling the business and getting married, about four months later, James was offered a... Um, cafe at the SF MoMA, which is where I first saw this uh, Wayne Tebow painting that started it all for me, which was uh, called Display Cakes. Um, And when we were visiting the cafe that James was going to open at the museum, uh, it hit me that, oh my God, here I am 10 years later in the museum where I first saw the cakes that first started my, you know, need to be a baker. Um, and we're going to have a cafe and I can make Tebow cakes. And it really started from there. And um, and it, it became a thing. It became sort of this, this project where every exhibition that was opening, we wanted to find something to make a suite based on. Um, and, you know, trolling through the permanent collections, trying to come up with things that were different and changing. And we only sell things based on art that can be seen in the museum. So it's kind of constantly evolving and changing. And, you know, it's been fun to see sort of how our, our, it started with just cakes, but um, it's evolved into now we're doing a few little savory things, but that's partially to satisfy customers who who aren't (laughs) enthusiastic about only having cake to choose from. If you only care about coffee and sweets, you know where to go now. Exactly. Um, And if James hasn't had his cappuccino, you know he doesn't have pants on. Exactly. Um, You've learned a lot about it. Yeah, no, real real factual stuff. (laughs) But if you want to know more about coffee from the source, you know, to the sip, get this book. It's fantastic. And all the sweets and baked goods in there they're with uh, are, are fantastic. I can't say enough about them. The affogato. Does mm. that feel like the culmination of the two of you? I mean, if you were mixed race, maybe more so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the affogato in this uh, book, actually, uh, it started out as a, a meringue. I um, was obsessed with figuring out how to use carob in a dessert because She's a secret I hippie. love <laughs> carob. I love the smell of carob as she you walk into it. smells like carob right now. <laughs> <laughs> as you walk into a health food store. And James is horrified, and I've kind of learned, because my husband has a, quite a sweet tooth, that carob is the only safe dessert I can bring in the house that won't be eaten by my husband. So I'll bring <laughs> home little, like, carob peanut clusters and and i can have as many of those as They're i all want yours, huh? yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyways i was convinced that you know i am 
am convinced that Carib sort of has this this bad rap that it um, is only disliked because someone's trying to pretend it's chocolate and it's not chocolate and you can't eat it sort of thinking it's a substitute for chocolate. Um, so I thought, well, how can I use carob as a flavoring that is interesting and cool and not trying to be chocolate? Um, so I had this idea to pair it with mezcal and I was making these meringues, uh, mezcal carob meringues, um, with toasted almonds. Uh, but because a lot of our shops are indoor outdoor in San Francisco and all the fog meringues just don't work well. So I'd been hanging on to that idea for a flavor combination that although while you're cooking it is completely nauseating smelling, it's really yeah. disgusting. Um, when kind of when dealt with in, in teaspoons rather than in cups, carob can be this really interesting kind of earthy grounding flavor. Um, grounding. You see that? She is a secret. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I thought, well, in order to get James to really like this, I have to put coffee over it. So, um, <laughs> And it works. I think it's delicious. It's yeah, really good. all things. Like, exactly. oh, you don't like going to the opera? How about if I put coffee on it? Exactly. <laughs> I like love that. going to It's kind of like that Portland put a burn on it thing. <laughs> <laughs> so it ended up working. I mean, he... I think... I, I feel like I have a little victory that he's enjoying something with carob in it. Yes. She's right. She won. Excellent. <laughs> and that's won. all it's about. And she gets to keep the parrot, carrot... Uh, carob peanut clusters too excellent so now that we know Caitlin won the show's over show's over <laughs> but if you're ever in Brooklyn stop over at Blue Bottle where is it exactly? it's 160 Berry Street and they're scattered throughout this city throughout. and throughout this country hopefully world soon and another time we'll talk about coffee around the world because the Kyoto is one of my favorite uh, coffees out oh, there super I brought a little thermos with some we can and hook you up it's going to take me three days to drink it too because I take little, little sips. So dink. <laughs> With my little finger out. Um, thank you guys again for being on. The Blue Bottle Cookbook is fantastic. Now out by 10 Speed Press. Thank you, yes, Michael. Thank you, Michael. This you, was fun. Wonderful. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 